The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. What a treat it's been for us this week, uh, hearing from Dr. John Payne on Tuesday, Wednesday, and finally this morning as well. We're so grateful, John, for you and Marla being here. Uh, It's a sacrifice not only on your parts, but your children and your parents, Marla's parents, who are watching the kids at this time as well. We pray for them and their ministry at Christ Church Presbyterian Charleston, South Carolina. We're so grateful that we have friends and partners in different parts of the country, and I pray that we will remember them in our prayers as well. This morning, uh, Dr. Payne's title lecture is The 21st Century Reformed Pastor, and in particular, following piety and proclamation, this morning's the subject is prayer. John, please come and teach us this morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you again this morning, and... uh, On behalf of uh, Marla and myself, thank you so much for the very warm uh, welcome we received while being here. We very much have felt at home, and of course, it's been a blessing to be among uh, old uh, friends on the faculty, and uh, it's been a a joyful week, and so we thank you uh, for welcoming us uh, so warmly here. Um, Prayer is uh, a hard subject to, to talk about. Uh, to lecture on, uh, to preach about. Any pastor, any seminary professor will tell you what a difficult subject this is to speak on because uh, no one is really good at this. Um, I do not stand up here today uh, as the great model of uh, a minister in prayer. In fact, working on this lecture, I was stomping all over my own toes, and uh, various Puritans and Reformers were stomping on my toes the whole time I was writing this lecture. Uh, When have you ever asked someone, how's your prayer life? And I said, man, it is so good. (laughs) I mean, oh my goodness. You know, I wasn't very good at prayer a few years ago, but now, ha, I mean, my prayer life's amazing. How's yours? Um, you You just don't hear that. Uh, so as we come at this subject, just know that we, we all come uh, with great humility and a desire to grow uh, in our prayer lives. Uh, I think part of where I'm coming from, not only in our consideration of uh, the, the 21st century Reformed pastor and piety, the 21st century Reformed pastor and proclamation and now prayer, is that we always want to have a very high standard that we are trying to reach. We're always striving uh, to be uh, the most faithful that we can be by the grace of God, right? And so uh, that goes for this subject as well. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, we'll read this text and then, and then have a word of prayer and then begin our time thinking about this important subject. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, by your grace, help us as we consider uh, this and many other texts of Scripture that encourage us as Christians and as pastors and future pastors to be men of prayer, men devoted first and foremost to prayer in our ministries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If the proclamation of Christ through word and sacrament is the great edifice of gospel ministry, 
then prayer is the solid foundation. Prayer is the solid foundation. It undergirds everything. Prayer is the air that the pastor breathed. Without it, he suffocates in ministry. And his people forfeit untold blessings. Without prayer, the minister labors in his own strength and eventually collapses under the weight and pressures of ministry. Prayer is indispensable for the pastor. A principal means whereby he communes with God personally and leads God's people corporately. It's a constant reminder that God is God and we are not God. God is God and we are not God. That apart from him, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. The great Genevan reformer John Calvin writes in his Institutes that, quote, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely, with good reason, the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon his name, end quote. We've been learning that the 21st century reformed pastor is a man of piety and proclamation. We will learn this morning that he is also a man of of prayer. I'm really hoping and praying that our time together this week uh, would not fall on deaf ears, as it were, for you or for me, that we would recognize that the heartbeat of reformed pastoral ministry, and when I say reformed, you know, I just mean biblical. I just mean biblical. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm making that point because we all call ourselves in an institution like this reformed. And we don't want to use that word in vain because those who are reformed are committed to personal piety, to the proclamation of Christ, and to prayer. To be a man of prayer is who a reformed pastor is called to be. It's what a reformed pastor is called to do. Indeed, a life devoted to prayer is a non-negotiable for men who are called to the ministry. I'll just say this, brothers, if you're going into ministry and you have no real intention of being a man of prayer, don't do it. Don't go. Do something else. But don't go into ministry. Prayer is indeed the fruit of a minister's sincere walk with God. It demonstrates a genuine reliance upon the Lord in all things. It is prayer, not personality, that reveals the pastor's true heart for God. 17th century Puritan John Owen put it this way, and John Owen's portrait is in my study, and he's always watching me. He's always making sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and John Owen, uh, who's sort of one of my heroes, he, he says this, quote, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what the minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. That he is and no more. Regrettably, we reform ministers are mostly in our books and rarely on our knees. We spend countless hours in our studies poring over God's word, reading good books, writing sermons. And these, of course, are worthy and necessary activities for the minister. We want to handle God's word accurately, and that takes dedicated and focused time in the study. Nevertheless... With all of the time we spend crafting our messages, we allocate minimal time to prayer. Prayer seems to be the last thing we want to do, not the first thing. How many times have you done this? I know I've done it several times. Uh, Said something like this in in a certain situation. We say, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. What do you mean all we can do now is pray? That should have been the very first thing you did, the thing you did in between, and the last thing you did. This wasn't the case with the apostles, though, was it? This wasn't true for our Lord Jesus. Their lives and ministries were bursting, were bubbling over with God-centered prayer. They were models of a holy reliance upon God, an abiding in God through the practice of prayer. Some people ask the question, what does it mean to abide in Christ, to abide in God? It means to pray. It means to... It means to read the scriptures. It means to sit under the the means of grace. We don't abide in Christ if we're not praying. In the text, 
that we read a few moments ago in Acts 6, Luke reports in verse 4 that the apostles were steadfastly devoted to prayer. There were many important ministries going on in the life of the first century church. Uh, Many of them involved practical matters like making provision for widows, uh, even orphans. Lots of things going on, but never were these practical and necessary ministries supposed to curtail or displace the apostles' devotion to prayer and the ministry of the word. Most argue, of course, that the office of deacon was established in this text, Acts 6, and that the main reason it was created was to free up the apostles and later the elders to carry out their primary calling. And did you notice the order of responsibilities listed here? In verse 4, after giving the directive to pick out from among you seven men of good repute to serve the church, they declared, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer is listed first. Did you catch that? Prayer is listed first. Prayer is the first thing that comes to the mind of the apostles as they consider their main responsibilities in the church. I must admit that when people ask me about my responsibilities as a minister, the ministry of prayer isn't always the first thing that comes to mind. It's the first thing that came to the mind of the apostles, to prayer. We can't let all of these important things going on in the church distract us from the most important thing, namely to be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What does a reformed pastor do? He shepherds the flock. He reaches out to visitors. He prepares and teaches Sunday school lessons and Bible studies. He writes and preaches sermon. He engages in study. He meets with staff. He he teaches kids catechism classes. He prepares liturgies. He counsels individuals and couples. He, He leads worship. He carries out membership interviews. He officiates weddings and funerals and disciples interns and visits hospitals and on and on and on we can go. The question is, does the multifaceted ministry of prayer come to focus into the forefront of our minds as 21st century pastors? Not always, but it surely did for the apostles. I want to argue that it should for us as well. Of course, the apostle Paul was still Saul uh, and a persecutor of the church during the events of Acts chapter 6. However, after his conversion and call to apostleship, Paul was also resolutely devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and in that order. Indeed, if anything characterizes the ministry of Paul, it is a ministry of prayer, a steadfast devotion to prayer. Eric Alexander writes, quote, so many of Paul's epistles have the meat of gospel truth sandwiched between an assurance that he prays without ceasing for those whom he writes and an appeal to pray for him. In other words, Paul's pattern in his epistles is to express, I pray earnestly for you. Would you please pray earnestly for me? For example, in his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul writes in the opening chapter, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Again, in chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to his riches of glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then at the conclusion of the letter, Paul exhorts his readers to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, now listen, this connects us to yesterday's message, and also for me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In his letter to the Philippians, the apostle begins by expressing his deep affection for his fellow believers and his unyielding commitment to pray for them. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. And then he concludes his epistle with a verse that you all know, uh, that they not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by what? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known to God. We discover this pattern of prayer again and again and again in the New Testament. 
In fact, while preparing this lecture, I was staggered by the intensity and the consistency of Paul's devotion to prayer and his passionate desire to be prayed for. Prayer was the fulcrum upon which the Apostle Paul's entire ministry turned and pivoted. To the believers in Rome, he wrote in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, we always pray for you. 2 Timothy 1.3, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Paul and the apostles were devoted to prayer. And they had a perfect example to follow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was a life of prayer. A life of spirit-wrought communion with his heavenly Father. One with his Father, Jesus poured out his heart to him in prayer. He prayed for those whom the Father had given to him in his great high priestly prayer, and he prayed for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ also taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Is there any doubt, then, that prayer has been designed to be at the very core, of course, of the Christian life, but of the pastoral ministry? 19th century congregational minister Edward Payson sure thought so. He, he wrote, quote, prayer is the first thing, the second thing, the third thing necessary to a minister. Pray then, my dear brother. Pray, pray, pray. Martin Luther famously asserted, quote, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and the business of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. 21st century Reformed pastor is called to do many things, but he is first and foremost called to the ministry of prayer. A man earnestly devoted to personal prayer, to family prayer, and to public prayer. So let's take a few minutes to unpack these aspects of the minister's life of prayer. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm going to have to Uh, to really only make a few comments about uh, the family prayer element, but we're going to talk mostly about personal prayer for the minister and the public prayers. In the mid-90s, I traveled to New Delhi, India, three different times. I considered uh, full-time missions there. In fact, on the first date with my wife, I asked her uh, what she thought about India and whether or not she would want to maybe serve there um, one day. Uh, She very honestly said, I hadn't thought about that, and probably not. Um, (laughs) But I I was very moved and touched uh, on my trips to India and considered full-time missions there. And when I went over there, I visited an elderly missionary named Reverend John Dorsey. Reverend Dorsey was a bright, stout eccentric missionary pastor who had been courageously preaching the gospel in India for over 50 years. He was in his mid-70s when I went to see him. He helped to plant numerous churches, and he also established a Christian school that had over 2,500 students in it. Most notably, Reverend Dorsey was a man of prayer. Everything he did was bathed in prayer. That may be the biggest impression that he had on me as a wet-behind-the-ear seminary student at the time. He was constant and steadfast in prayer. When staying with him, we would wake up every morning at 4 a.m. Yes, you heard that correctly. At 4 a.m., we would wake up to pray and to read the scriptures. With a tinge of humor and a sparkle in his eye, Reverend Dorsey would frequently remind me that we were saying our prayers and reading our scriptures before the Brahmin priest began saying and reading his prayers uh, at the temple down the street, which had a loudspeaker, so everybody knew when that was happening. After we prayed and read scripture together for 30 minutes or so, we would then seek God in private before breakfast. I remember uh, something that sort of With a snapshot in my mind, I remember uh, uh, just looking into, peering into his study, 
after I thought it was about breakfast time, and, and there he was with his old body slouched over, praying to God. At breakfast and most meals, we would, we would pray before and after the meal. They weren't long prayers, just short expressions of gratitude to a loving and faithful father. They were childlike acknowledgments of God's abiding presence and faithful provision. During the day, it seemed like there were always reasons to call upon the name of the Lord, bearing countless responsibilities on his shoulders. There was always a, a things being brought to Reverend Dorsey's attention. I noticed that his reflex was always to pray. Martin Luther once said, pray and let God worry. That, I believe, was Reverend Dorsey's approach. It was a holy instinct that developed over 50 years of gospel ministry in a country where over a billion people lived and a country where it was teeming with idols and false worship. The smell of idolatrous incense was everywhere. The spiritual darkness in India was palpable. The only time I felt like I may have been out praying Mr. Dorsey was when we were in Delhi traffic. Whether we were in a motor rickshaw, on a bike, in a car, or on a bus, I thought I was probably going to die every time we went out into traffic on one particular evening. And we, and we, rode, we rode bikes most of the time. I thought, don't the Mormons do this? We don't do this. What is this? <laughs> But Mr. Dorsey, he was very frugal. Uh, he, he weighed probably about 300 pounds. He was a big man, jolly man. And he would get on that bike and he would just go. And uh, sometimes he knocked people over, you know, as he was going. It was incredible just watching him go. And he would, I was, uh, at the time, I was playing professional soccer and I could hardly keep up with him. And he's weaving through this crazy traffic. And, and, and one evening as we were on our way to visit someone in the church, it's like 20 minutes away. You know, and we're going through all this crazy uh, 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 Delhi traffic. And, and I've, I've literally got like a bus about six inches from me here and, and a rickshaw right here. And I'm just going, going oh, God, help me, help me, help me. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then I look up and there's an elephant. <laughs> I kid you not. About, about 20 or 30 yards in front of me. And I, I look over to the guy in the rickshaw and I'm like, move over, you know, because I'm heading straight for the behind of this elephant. And he kind of looked at me and grinned, you know, and <laughs> did, he didn't move. And finally, at the last minute, he kind of moved over a little. I just barely went by this elephant's leg. Um, but there's a, you know, you think uh, in these contexts how, how it causes us to pray when we feel unsafe, when we feel the spiritual oppression we were always praying in India. Staying with Reverend Dorsey, the day also ended with prayer. Every evening before bedtime, we would spend a few minutes reading the scriptures and praying, giving thanks to God for his love and his promises and his faithfulness and his protection. And we would bring our request before the throne of grace. Reverend Dorsey modeled what it means to be a reformed pastor, devoted to prayer. Prayer was pervasive at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the day. His commitment to prayer was the closest thing I'd ever seen to the Apostle Paul's practice of praying without ceasing and praying constantly. My old friend is now in the presence of God and the angels, but his godly example will always be etched on my mind. As Reformed pastors, as aspiring Reformed pastors, God calls us to be devoted to prayer. It doesn't have to start when you begin your full-time ministry, it starts now. It starts now. Begin this practice of prayer, personal prayer, and prayer with your friends, and prayer in the margins of your day. Don't, don't get up from a conversation without saying, let's, let's, have, let's have a word of prayer. We pray too little. We talk too much. A vibrant and growing prayer life is a non-negotiable in pastoral ministry. And away from the classroom, outside the sanctuary, far from the hustle and bustle of public ministry, we are to be men committed to personal prayer. Puritan Thomas Watson was right when he expressed that, quote, a godly man will as soon live without food as without prayer. I don't know about you, but I look forward to every meal of the day. I, I typically don't miss them. Um, I typically don't forget about my meals, but I often forget to pray. 
Oh, how our appetites often run our lives rather than the Holy Spirit. Why do we struggle so much to pray? I've listed five reasons, and I'm going to move through them quickly. And perhaps you will be able to identify with some of these reasons that we don't pray, as, as I do. The first one is, um, really it's named after a Kevin DeYoung book, uh, Crazy Busy. We get crazy busy. We are so busy that we neglect to make time for prayer and personal devotion. We seem to have time for everything but prayer. And if we are honest, busyness is often a euphemism for time-wasting. Busyness is often a euphemism for time-wasting. When we check our social media 94 times a day, we check our ESPN app uh, 37 times a day. I know you. I know you guys. I know what you're doing. Log on to Netflix every night. We are definitely not too busy to pray. (laughs) We need to rein in our schedules and reorient our lives for the purpose of prayer. We're crazy busy. Secondly, spiritual apathy. We don't pray because we simply lack zeal for the Lord. We aren't zealous for the church. We're not concerned for the lost. We become comfortable with spiritual mediocrity. We aren't hungry for God. Thirdly, pride and self-reliance. We have an oversized view of ourselves and an undersized view of God. Consequently, we attempt to do life on our own, to do life in our own strength, keeping God at a safe distance. You know, when you pray, you draw near to God. And so when you don't pray, you keep him at arm's length. And, and we don't want to relinquish control of our lives. And so, and so we don't pray. We want to retain some level of autonomy in case God might want us to do, to do something risky or out of our comfort zone. And so we don't pray. A fourth reason for our prayerlessness, and this may be the biggest one, is habitual and unrepentant sin. If we are living in willful and unrepentant sin, we will not be eager to approach God in prayer. Like our first parents, we hide from God when we're living in habitual, unrepentant sin. Prayer is a spiritual weapon meant to help us in our fight against sin and temptation, but living in habitual and unrepentant sin will quench the fires of prayer and inhibit fellowship with God. I believe the modern sin of pornography may be, it may be, the biggest, most pervasive and prayer-crippling sin in the church and in seminaries today. Porn shatters intimacy with God in prayer. And my brothers, if you are having a problem with this, as so many are, even in the seminaries, don't listen to the whisper of the devil that says, it's okay, you can take care of this problem later. Just get your studies done. You'll be able to get past this once you get into full-time ministry. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Whatever you may be struggling with, whatever you may be going through in terms of pornography, if you are struggling with that, get help now. Do not put it off until later. It will destroy your intimacy with God, and you will not be prepared for ministry. I know you hear that message here in the seminary, from your professors, I want to reiterate it. It is so important that we do not have obstacles like that to our prayer lives. The final reason for prayerlessness is worldliness. This is a big one. When our hearts are drawn away from God by the pride and wisdom and possessions of this present evil age, our prayer lives wither. Indeed, worldliness kills prayerfulness. So we have busyness, spiritual apathy, pride, self-reliance, sin, and worldliness, all enemies to a life and ministry of prayer. Which one affects you? Maybe all of them in some part. Whatever the case may be, it is important to remember that one of the first steps of cultivating a rich prayer life, a growing prayer life, is to identify what is stopping you from having that and repenting. And asking for God's help to grow in God's grace in that area. Cultivating a life of prayer is absolutely vital as you think about moving into a life of full-time gospel ministry. Pastors who burn out, sell out, or flip out in the ministry 
And pastors do flip out in the ministry, if you haven't read the headlines lately. It's usually a testimony that at one stage in the life of their ministry, they stopped praying personally. Notice I'm saying personally because there's a there's an expectation that when the pastor comes into the pulpit on a Sunday that he's going to give some prayers, right? I will never forget 20 years ago, maybe a little longer, I was a seminary student and I remember being deeply touched by the prayers of one of the ministers of the church I was attending. Deeply touched. Others were as well. His prayers were theologically sound. They were eloquent. They were affectionate. They moved me. And then he was exposed for having a long-standing addiction to pornography and was removed from the church. You see, one can have this duplicitous life and even learn how to pray beautifully in public but not really walk with God in private. And so we need to remember how important personal prayer is for the minister. So how do 21st century Reformed pastors cultivate a devotion to personal prayer? There are seven ways. Seven ways. Number one, by considering the gospel. By considering the gospel. The first and best way to increase your devotion to personal prayer is to meditate upon God's great love and mercy for you in Jesus Christ. Consider the good news. Consider the good news, dear brother, that Christ came from heaven for you. For you, not just some general kind of humanity, but for you. Your name is written in his wounds. He came for you. He came to reconcile you to God, to make a new and living way for you and to the Holy of Holies through his flesh. Meditate on the fact that the eternal Son of God was born into this wretched and sinful world for you. That he perfectly fulfilled the requirements of God's law for you in your stead. And that he laid his life down on the cursed cross, all for you, all to rescue you from the guilt and due penalty of your sins. Consider that he rose from the dead on the third day and lives for you at God's right hand because he has united you to himself and nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing, ever. You want to improve your prayer life? Consider that one day in the future, the trumpet will sound and your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return in the clouds and gather you home in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, consider that unshakable kingdom that you have been brought into by grace through faith and that you will never be expelled from. Consider the fact that he who did not spare his own son but gave him over for you will in him give you all things. As you attend the means of grace on the Lord's Day in your local church, listen to and exercise your faith in the word of the gospel. Abide in Christ by faith in the preaching and at the font and at the table. The gospel is the chief motivation towards a growing life and devotion to prayer. It's what moved Paul to pray in the opening of, uh, of Ephesians and Philippians. It's what will move us to pray as well. The glorious gospel will always be our chief motivation to pray. And the more we are acquainted with the God of the gospel, the more we will want to call upon him. The more we know him, the more we will want to call upon him. I love the way my systematic theology professor, Douglas Kelly, puts it. Quote, the better we know what our Heavenly Father is like, the more we will readily leap into his arms in prayer. Consider the gospel. Secondly, consider the privilege. Consider the privilege of prayer. Prayer is not a human right. Prayer is not a human right. It's an undeserved privilege, and it came at great cost. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we take prayer for granted. Sometimes we forget the awesome dynamic of prayer. Namely, that Almighty God, the sovereign creator of the universe, hears and answers our prayers. From the lisping toddler to the most mature saint's prayer, God hears our prayers. Think of that. He's never too busy for you. There will always be people in your life that will be too busy for you at one time or another. God is never too busy for you. Think of that. 
He wants to hear from you. He never shoos you away. When we remember who we are as wretched sinners and who he is as holy God, we cannot help but be astonished by the nature of prayer. In a sermon preached in London on August 23, 1888, Spurgeon reminds us of the extraordinary wonder of calling upon the name of the Lord. He says this, quote, Our prayer must climb to that great ear which hears the symphonies of the perfected and the hallelujahs of cherubim and seraphim. Is there not something very wonderful about this, that we who are both insignificant and unworthy should be able to speak to him who made the stars and upholds all things by the word of his power? Yet this is the essence of prayer, to rise in human feebleness, to talk with divine omnipotence, in nothingness to deal with all sufficiency. You cannot venture upon this without the mediator Christ, but with the mediator What a wonderful fellowship a worm of the dust is permitted to enjoy with the infinite God. What condescension there is in a sinner communing with the thrice holy Jehovah. Seek after this communion. Nothing can excel it. Consider the gospel. Consider the privilege. Consider God's sovereignty. Consider his sovereignty. Some ask, why pray if if God is sovereign and his eternal decrees are fixed and immutable? Why pray? I think sometimes we, 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 we laugh at this, this notion as those who are reformed and we've got all of our, 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 our ducks in a row regarding the sovereignty of God in prayer, perhaps. But, but somehow, I think, in the subconscious, we don't pray because God is sovereign. Does the sovereignty of God make prayer a waste of time? Doesn't belief in God's sovereignty dampen our zeal to pray? In response, I would ask, why pray if God is not sovereign? What good would it do to pray to an impotent God? God's sovereignty doesn't make our prayers superfluous. It makes them powerful and effectual. It makes them meaningful and significant. Why? Because our prayers are a divinely ordained means through which God's purposes are realized. It's extraordinary. It's mysterious. God ordains the ends, and the means of his holy decrees. Nothing is left to chance. It makes prayer meaningful and significant. The Lord, in his divine wisdom and love, grants his adopted children the privilege of participating in his fixed and unfolding plans through prayer. Again, Douglas Kelly explains that, quote, when we begin to grasp the truth that our prayers can be used as part of the outworking of God's secret will, then we will discover that prayer is not at all rendered unnecessary or futile because of the existence of the predestined plan or will of God. Rather, prayer is the means of actually carrying out that plan. You have not because you ask not. Oh, the mystery wrapped up in prayer. The Lord's Prayer underscores this truth. When Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So dear brothers, as you seek to be a man of prayer, a pastor who is devoted to personal prayer, consider the gospel, consider the privilege, consider God's sovereignty. Fourthly, consider praying scripture. Consider praying the prayers and promises of scripture. We must admit that sometimes our personal prayers become mundane. Repetitive. We get weary of hearing ourselves conveying the same tired old phrases and expressions. We, we sense others might feel the same, and so our prayers become less frequent. The good news is that God's word provides a goldmine of rich content and model prayers to improve our prayer lives. Matthew Henry's uh, early 18th century book called A Way to Pray was written to help Christians to learn how to pray the scriptures. You should read that. You should have that. Uh, In fact, if you don't have that book, A Way to Pray, first of all, repent and then go buy it. (laughs) A Way to Pray. The best prayers are those filled with Scripture and allusions to Scripture and expressions of Scripture, echoing back to heaven the truth and promises of God's Word. Another extremely helpful little book written to help Christians pray is called A Guide to Prayer by Isaac Watts. 
In it, he writes this, quote, Since prayer is a duty of such absolute necessity for all and of such universal use, it is fitting we should all know how to perform it aright, that it may be accepted by the great God and become a delightful and profitable exercise to our own souls and to those that join with us. Learn to pray the scriptures and the promises of God by reading these classic books. Even better, open your Bible and incorporate the language of the prayers of the Bible into your own prayers. We can learn a great deal from the inspired prayers of Moses and Hannah and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Daniel and Nehemiah and Jesus and the tax collector who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven and simply declared, have mercy on me, O God. We learn from the prayers of the apostles and others. Fifthly, consider prayer as a key to sanctification. Prayer is a means of grace. It is a means to spiritual growth in Christ, along with the word and sacraments. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, refers to prayer as an outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, made effectual to the elect for salvation. Why should 21st century reform pastors be devoted to prayer? Because it is a divinely instituted means through which God communicates Christ to his elect and by which we abide and commune with him by faith. We grow and mature in Christ and the ministry of the word. And prayer is vital for the sanctification of the pastor and his congregation. Question 116 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Answer, because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us and also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who with sincere desires continually ask them of him and are thankful for them. There's a continual asking for the power of the Spirit and the grace of God to uphold us, to enable us, to strengthen us, to comfort us. Sixthly, and more practically, foster a strong prayer life by crafting a new schedule. Recently, I was speaking with a church member who was expressing frustration over his prayer life. I asked if he had any designated times in his schedule for personal Bible reading and prayer. He said, no. I said, have you designated any times to pray with your wife or, or with your family? He said, no. Uh, I would... I would, I would Guess that there were things that were scheduled in the day, like uh, three meals, maybe, maybe some snacks, maybe some hobbies, maybe some TV. But there's nothing designated for what we all say is one of the most important things in our lives. So I encouraged him gently to make a daily, uninterrupted appointment with God, just a few minutes, preferably in the morning to begin the day with God, to seek his face, and to fasten on the full armor of God. And I challenged him to set a time for family worship every day, to lead his dear wife and covenant children to the throne of grace and to the God who loves them. If he committed to this simple daily routine, he would add 14 formal times of prayer. Actually, it would be uh, 28 formal times of prayer in his life, a time for personal prayer and a time for family prayer. 28 times of prayer in his week have just been added by having just a few minutes a day. Daniel was a stellar example in this regard, kneeling to pray three times a day, even though it may cost him his very life. He knelt and prayed three times a day. Seventh, practically again, consider journaling your prayers. Uh, uh, we all need help, don't we, in our devotional lives. We all need to be encouraged. We all need uh, to be refreshed. And so from time to time, I personally have kept a journal. I've actually written out word for word my prayers, praying for my family, my church, various things going on in the world and in our lives. And it's encouraging to read back over some of those prayers, isn't it? And to see how God has answered them. Uh, how often do we rush to the next request rather than thinking about how God has answered prayers for us in the past. There are no words to express how important and vital prayer is for the ministers. The prayerless minister is like an oak tree without roots, looking strong and sturdy from the outside, but in reality is shallow, unstable, and hollow. 
The prayerless pastor is easily blown over by the slightest winds of trial and temptation. The prayerless pastor may survive for a while, but he won't go the distance. We are called to personal prayer. We are called to family prayer. I won't say much about this for time's sake, but we are called, brothers, to pray with our spouse, to pray with our children. Our prayers should, in a good way, haunt our children their whole lives long. To to hear the voice of their father praying that God would have mercy on them, that they would be saved from everlasting judgment and damnation where they deserve to go, and to know Christ. Oh, that we would pray for our families. How, How could we tell our congregations that Fathers need to pray for their families, and yet we aren't doing that ourselves. Oh, that we'd be ministers who pray for our families. But finally, I want to talk, as we close, about public prayer. The 21st century Reformed pastor is devoted to personal prayer and family prayer, but also as an under-shepherd of God's flock. He is committed to public prayer. And most don't think in these terms, but public prayer is at the very core of the pastor's ministry to his flock. Some may wonder what constitutes public prayer. Well, Zacharias or Sinus, in his classic commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he explains the difference between private prayer and public prayer. He says, quote, Prayer is distinguished into public and private prayer from the circumstances of person and place. Private prayer is the intercourse which a faithful soul has with God, asking alone and apart from others certain blessings for himself or others, or giving thanks for benefits received. Public prayer is that which, by the use of certain words, is offered up to God by the whole church in the congregation, the minister leading as it is right and proper that he should in the public gatherings of the church. The reference to the prayers in Acts 2.42 is a reference to the public prayers of, of the apostles on behalf of the gathered church. The early Christians were devoted to attending these public prayers, even as the apostles were devoted to pray for them. Sadly, in our day, little attention is given to the pastor's public prayers. Even in confessional churches, the order of worship often amounts to a half dozen or so announcements, two or three long sets of music and singing, then an offering, of course, we've got to have the offering in there, a sermon, and a couple of quick prayers in between the sets of songs while the musicians make their adjustments. I've witnessed this dearth of prayer numerous times over the years while visiting various confessional churches. In these services, one gets the feeling that prayer is an afterthought rather than a central element of the liturgy. Moreover, the prayers in public worship are frequently led by song leaders. They're led by untrained, well-meaning, but untrained song leaders and not by the ordained ministers. With this informal and extempore approach to prayer and public worship, the prayers are often superficial and highly idiosyncratic, revealing more about the one praying than the God to whom they are praying. There is no question that the ministry of prayer, the public prayer, has fallen on hard times, even in theologically conservative reform circles. If churches give more than five minutes to prayer in Lord's Day worship, then they are in the minority. What many are forgetting is that scripture and the Reformed tradition informs us that public prayer is an important and central element of Christian worship, and that is a primary means of grace. Brothers, prayer was never meant to be pushed to the margins of worship or relegated to necessary filler in the liturgy. It's designed to be at the very core of worship. My first exposure to public prayer and the ways I'm describing was while living and studying in Edinburgh. My wife and I began attending a church not too far from our flat, and what we quickly discovered was that there was something very different about the church's public prayers and worship. The minister's prayers weren't informal. They weren't uh, chatty. They weren't overrun with uh, uh, informal, shallow cliches. Rather, his prayers possessed gravitas. His prayers possessed gravitas. They they were filled with scripture. One got the sense that he truly believed he was leading us into the throne room of Almighty God, as it were, to the throne of grace. It was his pastoral prayer in particular that gripped my heart and stirred my affections. It It was passionate, substantial prayer that lasted somewhere between seven and ten minutes. 
starting with adoration, the prayer called attention to the glorious nature and works of God in creation and redemption. It then moved seamlessly to expressions of love and thanksgiving for God's good gifts, not least the gift of his beloved son and the unsearchable riches of our inheritance in him. Not having a more formal and designated time of confession in the, in the liturgy, the minister then moved into a time of repentance and confession of sin. And since it was in the context of gathered worship, there was no time of silence given for individual confession of sin, since that can be done before or after the service. The pastor confessed sin on behalf of the congregation, sin that everyone could identify with. Lastly, the pastor turned to supplication, calling upon the name of the Lord for grace and comforts and healing and strength in relation to various matters pertinent to their context and their congregation. It was a masterful model of biblical and reformed prayer. It was informed by the reformed confession, the manner in which he prayed, the content which he prayed. Written for congregational instruction, the larger catechism asks, how are we to pray? Answer, we are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins, with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. Are you a Reformed pastor? Are you aspiring to be a Reformed pastor? This is what a Reformed prayer sounds like. Shouldn't we aspire to this? Praying in the tradition of Knox, Bruce, Rutherford, and Ferguson. Our Scottish pastor, Pastor Phil Hare, he led us well to the throne of grace. After some reflection, there were three things that struck me about our Scottish pastor's public prayers and gathered worship. The first one was that it was saturated with scripture and allusions to scripture. God's truth and promises, like a golden thread, were interwoven throughout his public prayers. Get this, please. His prayers were an extension of the ministry of the word. His prayers were an extension of the ministry of the word, which is what they are intended to be. Trite sayings and worn-out cliches are no match for the word of God in prayer. Secondly, public prayer is a means of grace. That's one thing I learned there as well, that public prayer is a means of grace. When our Scottish pastor prayed, it was like time had stopped as he skillfully and reverently ushered us into the presence of our blessed triune God. His prayers had a profound spiritual effect on me, convicting me of sin, comforting me in the gospel, nourishing my faith, stirring my affections, strengthening my resolve to be more thankful and obedient in Christ. His prayers in Lord's Day worship became a significant part of my own sanctification, of my own growth in Christ. It became one of the things I looked forward to most on Sundays. Get me to the pastoral prayer. It's been a hard week. Get me to the pastoral prayer, a means of grace in the context of gathered worship before our covenant God who promises to bless us with his special presence in that hour and on that day. Over the years, I have made public prayer a significant part of our worship service, and I've heard similar sentiments from members of my congregation of how much they look forward to that part of the service. Now, you also get a lot of funny responses to long, long public prayers. You know, we've got a lot of children in our congregation, and we just love them dearly, but from time to time, you'll hear a long sigh. <sighs> I've heard in the past a child say, how long is he going to go, Mom? <laughs> By and large, people love the prayers of their ministers in this, in this kind of context, in this kind of way. Prayer is designed by God, by the power of the Spirit, through the instrument of faith, to feed and comfort our souls in Christ. I'm afraid that many ministers and aspiring ministries do not get this, that prayer is a means of grace in the life of God's people. And we are called to administer that in public worship and other places as well. There is no more befitting place to pray than in public worship in the midst of the holy congregation. 
Prayer is a Christ-mediated response to the sovereign majesty and grace of God in the gospel. It's a pouring out of our souls in worship. It doesn't change God, but it surely changes us. Therefore, a worship service with little to no prayer is hardly a worship service at all. And it cheats God's people out of a primary means of sanctifying grace. Today's church is spiritually impoverished, I believe, by our lack of serious prayer and public worship. We need to recover the principle that public prayer is more than just talking to God. It's a divinely ordained means of grace. Thirdly, public prayer is instructional to the congregation. Much much like uh, faithful exegetical and expository preaching uh, teaches Christians how to read and study God's word, faithful public prayer serves as an instructive guide to prayer. Learning to pray well is as much caught as it is taught. If the pastor's prayers are trite and man-centered, the congregation's prayers will follow suit. Alternatively, if the minister's prayer reflect the God-besotted gravitas of the prayers of David, Daniel, and Paul, then the members of the congregation will pray this way too. That's one reason why it is critical that pastors take public prayer seriously, even taking time to prepare their public prayers in a studied way, either bringing an outline or some notes or even a, a full manuscript of their prayers into the pulpit. And when you do so, and if you bring a full manuscript of your prayer, and do not read it like a robot. Nobody should know that you are reading your prayer because you know that manuscript so well that you're praying it affectionately and zealously and people don't, do, not, do not even know. I remember one time in a, a conference I had, I had prayed the pastoral prayer at, a, at, a, at one of the worship services at this conference and, and I had prayed this, you know, about a two and a half page prayer filled with scripture and all these things and this man came up to me after the service and he said, Pastor John, That prayer was so wonderful. It just ministered to my soul. And I know that came straight from your heart, and you did not write that down. (laughs) I I didn't have the heart to tell him that I wasn't as spiritual as he thought I was. Um, But, you know, in reality, it's not unspiritual to think about what you are going to say in public prayer. Just like it's not unspiritual to think about what you're going to say in your sermon. Well, in conclusion, if ever the church needed praying pastors, it is now. It is now. Pastors who frequent the throne of grace personally and lead his congregation to the throne of grace publicly. We need more 21st century reformed pastors who agree with Thomas Watson when he said that a godly man is a praying man. As soon as grace is poured in, prayer is poured out. Prayer is the soul's traffic with heaven. God comes down to us by his spirit and we go up to him in prayer, he says. We need pastors who pray more and log on to Netflix and Instagram less. Men who love to converse with God and love to lead God's people into the Holy of Holies in Sabbath worship. Men who want to be like John Knox, the magisterial Scottish reformer whose prayers were described by Mary, Queen of Scots, as more of a threat to her throne than all the assembled armies of Europe. Men who want to be like Martin Luther, who once said, I have so much to do today, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Oh, that God would rekindle in all of us a passion for prayer. Beloved, the the 21st century Reformed pastor possesses many duties, many responsibilities, but we have seen this week that his primary calling is to piety, proclamation, and prayer. My prayer is that your current or your future ministries will be marked by these three things and that like Paul, you would seek to carry them out in the energy and strength of Christ. May these three words, piety, proclamation, and prayer be etched on your minds and on your hearts as you seek to be a faithful Reformed pastor in this challenging age of the 21st century. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for this time here at Westminster Seminary, California, uh, with this dear faculty and with these dear students whom you love, whom you greatly love, and whom you long for them to know you more and to minister in your name in a biblical way. And so, Lord, would you help us all 
to walk with you in the Spirit and according to your truth and to be ministers and future ministers who are devoted to piety, to proclamation, and to prayer. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.